It's really sweet to be with you all again. Like Mark said last time I was here, we were able to look at God's holiness. God's holiness. God is fully devoted to Himself and His glory. That's what it means that He is holy. Uh, and today we're actually going to look at what does it mean that we are God's holy people, His holy nation. Uh, it means that we are set apart for Him. It means that we are totally devoted to Him and His glory. So that's what we're going to look at this time and then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at how do we grow in personal holiness. Today as we think about uh, our position as God's holiness, I want us to uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Oliver already read it. And it's Palm Sunday, and as we focus on the, this week on the last days of Christ's life on earth before His death and resurrection, it's fitting that we consider what He accomplished by shedding His blood. What did Christ's death on the cross accomplish? And that is that He purchased for Himself a people and made us a holy nation. So let's read First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray as we look at God's Word here. God, we come before You humbly this morning recognizing that we were not a people and we were far off from You and we were in spiritual darkness on, on the fast track to hell far from You. And yet You have brought us near. And not only that, You've made us Your special possession, Your holy nation through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we thank You for that. Open our eyes. Help us to understand Your Word more fully this morning and let it have its place in our hearts. So we thank You and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to ask us this morning, what's, what is your identity? What defines you? Today, what are you living for? We hear people talk about having an identity crisis quite frequently, wondering, who am I at this point in my life? And that reveals a reality that for us as human beings, our identity can often be unstable and shift. And it's common today where identity seems to be linked really closely with whatever social cause someone is promoting. I think some of us found in this last year that our identities, or at least our nation, was divided into two identities, Republican and Democrat, right? Maybe not quite as pronounced now that the election year is over. Maybe this month it's that you're pro or against the Second Amendment. Or maybe you just got married or you had a child uh, and your identity is now marked by being a dad or being a spouse and your life changes and begins to revolve around your spouse or a little one. Maybe you recently lost a spouse and suddenly you feel your identity is permanently changed and the only thing that defines you is your widowhood. Whatever a person's identity, 
one thing is clear. Their identity affects their purpose, doesn't it? Our identity drives where we spend our energy, where we spend our thoughts, our resources, and our time. And and it affects what we see as our goals in life. And whatever our identity, we would probably all agree that it has a massive impact on our life. But often, how we see ourselves and how we define ourselves is wrong. It's incorrect, and that's why it's unstable and it's changing all the time. Because as Christians, our identity never changes. What is always to dominate our lives and motivate our actions and direct our purpose is our identity as followers of Christ, is it not? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter is going to show us that what defines a Christian, our identity, our position is that we are a holy nation. And our purpose is to bring God glory. That is how we are to see ourselves and it's not subject to change. He says, again looking at verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And our purpose is to proclaim His excellencies. Peter leaves no doubt about the church's identity, does he? The church is a holy nation. And the church has a holy purpose, and that is to proclaim God's excellencies. But I want to ask you, do you see yourself, do you find your identity as part of God's holy nation, as His people? Is that what defines you and consumes your uh, mental energy? If you're a Christian, it should be. If you're a Christian, it should be. But often it isn't, right? Often we're distracted and we define ourselves. We find our identity in many other things. And in part, we don't fully understand what it means that we are God's holy nation and that makes it so that our identity is unstable because we don't have a complete understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus. So this morning I want to dive into a proper understanding of what it means that we are God's holy nation. Namely, that we have a a new position and a new purpose. When Peter says here, we are a holy nation, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? The term nation in Greek is ethnos, and it doesn't necessarily indicate a geopolitical group like we see here in our nations today, but it indicates an ethnic group, a shared language, a shared culture. And that group, that nation, Peter says in verse 9, is holy, it's set apart by God and for His glory. But what should amaze us is that Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, tells us he's writing to the churches in several different nations, several different ethnicities in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all part of the Roman Empire, but all separate, distinct people groups. And yet, despite all these differences, Peter identifies these believers with one common identity. They're God's holy nation. That is what defines the church. This declaration that these churches are one holy nation isn't new terminology. It's not a new idea. This wasn't a title that was first created at the uh, commencement of the church after Christ's ascension and and the Spirit's coming at, at Pentecost in Acts 2. It was actually first used to describe Israel. God's holy nation. 
And in fact, all of the phrases in chapter 2, verse 9, the, the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, they actually were all used first to describe Israel. And specifically, they refer to one passage of Scripture. That's Exodus 19, where we see three of these four passages together, or terms together. You can go to Exodus 19 with me. We're going to spend a bunch of time there. In Exodus 19, verses 5-6, through 6, God is inaugurating the Mosaic Covenant Mount Sinai uh, with uh, Israel after the Exodus around 1446 B.C. And I want you to listen to verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19. It says, now then, if you, this is God speaking, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's almost word for word. Peter is clearly referring back to this event that we're seeing here in Exodus 19. And Peter is referencing this passage in Exodus 19 and the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. It's the only place where we see all of these terms used together. And he does so because he wants to show us that whereas ethnic Israel was previously God's holy nation, now the church is God's holy nation. And we'll see how that works as we go along. He is seeding his declaration that the church is God's holy people in the context of Exodus 19. And he's pointing back to it. And he's saying, you need to understand what's going on there so you understand what I'm saying here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So today what we're going to do in order to understand what it means that the church is Christ's, is God's holy nation, we're going to first look and see what that term meant in relation to Israel in Exodus 19. And we're going to look at the position and purpose of Israel as God's holy nation uh, that we see in Exodus 19 so that second, our second main point, so that we can understand the position and purpose of the church as God's holy nation. So let's first look at the position and purpose of Israel as God's holy nation here in Exodus 19. What's the context? God had made a covenant with Abraham, promising to make him a great nation. And as his descendants uh, multiplied in uh, the land, they would actually dwell as captives in another land. God had told that to Abraham and that they would be oppressed there during 400 years. And that after that, God would deliver them. God had already declared that to Abraham. And we see through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, how God sovereignly orchestrates to plant Israel in the land of Egypt, and how they spent 400 years there in captivity. As Exodus starts, the book of Exodus, the promised 400 years of bondage are coming to an end. And God raises up Moses and delivers Israel from Egypt. And, and we know the story. He does signs and wonders and He brings incredible plagues uh, to punish the Egyptians and, let, and cause them to let His people go. Incredible miracles parting the sea. And He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's as they're camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai that God 
declares His purposes for Israel, namely that He would make them His holy nation. And they're at the bottom of the mountain. God is at the top, appearing in clouds and darkness and thunder and lightning. And that's the scene that we're seeing here in Exodus 19. Verse 3 says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession among the nation, among the, all the peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now again, we see the similarities with 1 Peter 2.9. Except here, again, God is speaking to Israel, not the church. And He's choosing them out from among the nations to be His special people. So we need to understand what is God doing with Israel in this passage so that, again, we understand what He's doing with Israel in 1 Peter chapter 2. So what is God doing with Israel in Exodus 19? We're going to look at it in two ways. He's giving them a new position and He's giving them a new purpose as a nation. And He does it by establishing His covenant with Israel as His covenant people. So let's look at each of these. First, God is establishing Israel in a new position as His covenant people. What was Israel's identity before Exodus 19? Israel had become a nation. Jacob's twelve sons had multiplied. They were fruitful and became large enough that the Egyptians were afraid of them. But there wasn't anything significant about Israel. They weren't great. They weren't known. They weren't distinguished from amongst the nations. Deuteronomy 7.7 tells us they weren't greater or more powerful than any of the other nations. There was no specific identity that they held. But when God brought Israel out of Egypt and established His covenant with Him, the Mosaic covenant, their identity was completely transformed. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. Do we hear that? God owns all the earth. All the nations of the earth are His. And yet He's choosing Israel to be His special possession, taking them out and separating them, setting them apart from the rest of the nations. That's what's happening in Exodus 19. That's what Peter wants us to see. God is doing this by establishing His covenant with Israel. What is a covenant? Not, not a term that we use often today. A, a covenant in biblical times was an agreement, almost a legal contract between two parties, typically formed between a king or a ruler and a nation that he had conquered. And that nation would covenant to obey the king and live by his law. And conversely, the king would pledge to rule over them and provide and protect them And if either party broke the covenant, there were consequences, which most often was death. It was a covenant, 
A covenant was a solemn, unbreakable relationship between ruler and his subjects. And God in His grace is establishing a covenant with Israel. Again, the covenant resulted for Israel in a new position and identity for Israel. They were no longer just one of the nations. They were the nation that was in covenant with Yahweh, the one true God, as His special possession. It was a change of position from common among the nations to being set apart by God as His holy nation. Now, we need to figure out how did God establish this covenant with Israel? What did that look like? We're going to look at that. I want us to note four elements to establishing a covenant. And before you groan and say this is something for seminary students, we're going to look at this later and we're going to see that these four elements aren't just for seminary students. They are for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. And they're massively important to our identity as God's holy nation. So it's not a bad idea to take notes, jot in the margins of your Bible as we follow the formation of this covenant through Exodus 19. Let's get right into it. Look at the first element in verses 4-5. through It's God's sovereign election. God's sovereign election. The king must choose his subjects. Chapter 19, verses 4-5, through God sovereignly chose and called Israel into covenant with Himself. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to Myself. God delivered them, chose them, brought them to Himself to establish this covenant. Again, this wasn't because Israel was great. It was because of of God's sovereign grace. So that's the first element, God's sovereign election. Here's the second element, sanctification. Sanctification is necessary to establish a covenant relationship with the Holy God. After hearing God's offer of this covenant relationship, in verse 8, Israel accepts. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They accepted the covenant. So the ball is rolling. The covenant is being established. And the next step is sanctification. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. That's the word, sanctify them. Today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. That was the day the covenant would be made. For on the third day, he will, he, on the third day, the Lord, Yahweh, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And without belaboring the point, what we need to see is that when sinners come into the presence of holy God, they need to be cleansed. In verse 21, God makes it clear why. Even after some ritual washings that were purely external, Israel was still sinful. And God tells Moses in verse 21, not to let the people go up on the mountain into God's presence, lest they gaze upon Yahweh and many of them perish. They needed to be sanctified. And even after an external washing, they were still sinful. Yahweh's holiness demands that Israel be sanctified so that they could enter this covenant. So those are our first two, God's election and sanctification. Third, the third element is obedience. Go with me to, uh, let's see, we'll stay right here in chapter 19. 
A commitment to obedience is a part of the covenant. God demanded that Israel obey Him in verse 5. Look at what it says in verse 5. If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you will be My own possession. And in chapter 20, after Israel agrees, God begins giving Israel His law. And it starts, what do we see in chapter 20, the first verses? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. God is establishing His law with Israel. God God begins to speak in chapter 20 and He says, You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take Yahweh's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And the Ten Commandments were a summary of God's law that He begins to expand upon in the rest of chapters 20 through 23. This is the law of the Mosaic Covenant that Yahweh demanded that Israel keep and it distinguished Israel as God's people. No one else had a law like this. And Israel was called to obey. Go with me to chapter 24. 24 verse 3. Look at Israel's response to this demand for obedience. It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. There was a commitment to obey Yahweh. So God gave His law and Israel committed to obey. Obedience is that third element. And fourth and finally, the element that seals and and inaugurates this, initiates this covenant was sacrifice and sprinkling of blood after Israel commits to obey. Look at verse 4 of chapter 24. It says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So there's sacrifices and Moses takes half of the blood and he puts it on the altar, sprinkles the altar, and that represents God's presence because God is spirit. Then look at what he says in verse 7. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, the other half, and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God and man had both been, uh, God uh, figuratively sprinkled with blood, the the people physically. And look at what he says in verse 8. This is the covenant which the Lord has made. Past tense. Once the blood was sprinkled, the covenant was in place. It had been started. Shedding of blood through sacrifice and the sprinkling of blood on the altar signified the, the formation of the covenant. And if this helps us think about it, we've all seen movies where two kind of rough pirates 
want to make a pact and they pull out their knives and lay a slice in their hands and they shake and their blood mingles and it's this blood oath and the idea is that this is an unbreakable oath and whoever breaks it is on pain of death. They'll die. That's just maybe a helpful illustration to help us understand what's going on. So to recap, there's these four elements. God had sovereignly chosen Israel. They had been sanctified. They committed to obey Yahweh's law. And with the shedding of blood, God's covenant with Israel was finalized. It was signed in blood. And it brought Israel into a covenant relationship with God. What was the significance again of the covenant? It changed Israel's position They were no longer just one nation from amongst the nations. They were now God's chosen people. His holy nation. And God set them apart. How? By establishing this covenant with them. This is what defined Israel. This is where they derived their identity or should have. They were Yahweh's. They were the people of the God of all the universe. That's what distinguished them now. And that leads us to our, our second sub-point here looking at Israel. That Israel's new position as God's covenant people gave them new purpose. We saw Israel's position, now we see Israel's new purpose. Go back with me to chapter 19. After telling Israel in verse 5 that through the covenant they would be His own possession among all the peoples, God makes clear in verse 6, that as His covenant people, Israel also has a new purpose. Verse 6 says, chapter 19, verse 6, You shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? A priest is one who stands between God and man as an intermediary. And this, is, this was God's call for Israel to be His priests, to have this special position as those who bring the nations to God, lead them in praising God and who intercede for the nations so that they would receive God's blessings. And they're also the ones who speak for God and teach others His law by word and example. It was a position of honor. But verse 6 says not only were they to be priests to God, but also to be a holy nation. Again, what does it mean to be holy? Set apart by God and totally devoted to Him and His glory. Deuteronomy 26, 18-19, God says that He would set Israel high above all the nations which He has made for praise, fame, honor, and, uh, and later glory. And that you shall be a sanctified people to Yahweh your God. Israel's purpose had changed when they entered into this covenant with God. No longer did they live for themselves. They lived solely and exclusively for the praise, fame, honor, and glory of Yahweh who had set them apart and given them this privileged position. They were distinct from the nations. And God's law made them distinct. Even just starting with the first and second Commands in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods amongst a, a world full of idolatry, shall not make an idol. Israel's distinctiveness as God's holy nation would give all the glory to God. 
And because they were His people, and and because they would be His people, a reflection of His character on earth, as they were holy, God would get the glory. Now, when we ask again, what does it mean? And and here's where we're going to see the connection with us. When we ask, what does it mean to be God's holy nation? This is what Peter wants us to have in mind. We didn't do all of that for nothing. This is the context that Peter has in mind by referring to those characteristics of God's holy nation. He wants us to know that to be a holy nation is to have a new position, a new identity through covenant relationship with Yahweh. It means to be set apart from all of the people of the earth as God's special possession through covenant. And that new position as God's holy nation means that you can no longer live for yourself, can you? God has set you apart to live for Him and His glory. That's the context for Peter's declaration in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And he wants us to have this in mind. Israel's identity as a holy nation, their position as God's covenant people, and their purpose to be dedicated to God and His glory. Because that is our, as the church, that is our privileged position. And so now I want us to look at our position, the church's position and purpose. God has given us as the church a new position, setting us apart as His covenant people. And He's given us a new purpose to be devoted entirely to God and His glory. So this is our second main point. The position and purpose of the church as God's holy nation. First, the church's position as God's covenant people. Have you ever signed up for something online? And you filled in all the blanks, name, address, all the information they uh, ask of you. And you get to the bottom and you're ready to submit. And you click submit and it doesn't work because you haven't checked the little box, yes, I have read and agreed to the terms of service. How many of us have clicked that box without actually reading it? I think probably all of us, right? Our salvation can be kind of like that. When we heard the Gospel for the first time, we didn't understand the terms and services. We didn't understand everything that our salvation entailed. What we understood is that Jesus Christ came to the earth and He died for sinners. And I am a sinner who needs forgiveness. And He purchased that forgiveness at the cross and He rose again. And I, through faith in Him, I'm saved. And that's where we start the Christian life. We don't start it with a full understanding of our salvation and everything that it applies. And that's okay. God saves us in our blindness and ignorance. But He wants us to grow up into a full understanding of our salvation, a mature view. And when we look deeply at our salvation as Christians, we begin to realize that our salvation comes to us through the New Covenant. We're saved through the new covenant. And that what is to define us as Christians is that we are those who are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, if that defines us as Christians, why doesn't it seem like we see that more through Scripture? 
And the answer is often because we're not looking hard enough for it. We don't understand that that's what we're to be looking for. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Because from the first verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is declaring to these churches that they are the new covenant people of God. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Did you hear the covenant in those verses now that we've read Exodus 19? It's there. Look at verse 1 in the Greek. The first word after Peter introduces himself is elect. But if you have the NASB, it moves that word to the end of verse 1 and translates it as chosen. And it really conveys the idea that Peter is trying to communicate because it initiates a string of declarations. And as we saw in Exodus 19, it's actually the four elements of a covenant is what Peter is showing us here. Starting with our election, God the Father sovereignly choosing us according to His foreknowledge. Next he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's what? Sanctification. Third, he says, for obedience to Christ. That's that third element, obedience. Fourth, for sprinkling with His blood. It couldn't be more clear. He's talking about a covenant that we have with God. How many times have we read over that verse and never understood? Peter is telling us we are in a covenant relationship with Him. And we don't understand the fullness of what that means until we dig deep into the Scriptures. We need to constantly search the Scriptures, both old and new, so we don't miss something that's so foundational that Peter can't even get out a whole phrase before he's telling us this truth. You are in a covenant relationship with God if you are a Christian. Our relationship with God in the New Covenant is the foundation for everything that Peter says afterward in this letter, including his declaration of our identity as God's holy nation. Do you see how what he says at the beginning of his letter connects to his proclamation that we are God's chosen people, His own possession, a kingdom of priests, His holy nation? It's there from verse 1 in 2 in in 1 Peter. What does that mean? It means that the God who created the whole universe has made us His people. And we are in an unbreakable covenant relationship with Him. Before we look closer at our new covenant position, I want to address a question. What about Israel under the Old Covenant? What happened to them? They were God's holy nation under the Old Covenant. And why is there a new covenant? What was wrong with the old one? And the simple answer is, Israel broke their covenant with God. 
And that's really the story of Israel's history from the time of Joshua's death that, and they entered the promised land. They, they continuously obeyed and turned away from God and broke His covenant. In Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses long before that happened that Israel would be unable to keep the covenant and that they would break that covenant. And Israel did just that. They constantly disobeyed. God promised in Deuteronomy 28 that He would bring curses on them, uh, discipline, fierce discipline to try to draw them back to Himself. But Israel's problem was a heart problem. It was a heart problem. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses tells Israel that they didn't have a heart. Yahweh hadn't given them a heart to follow God. Israel had sinful, corrupted hearts that always went after idols, just like all of us had before Christ saved us. Depraved, wicked, and deceitful, constantly turning away from God and His Word. And the result was for Israel that they broke God's covenant. They didn't obey. And eventually they were exiled from the land. Uh, And as they were exiled among the nations, what happened? Thinking about the holiness of God. God's name was profaned. God's name was profane. That means the opposite of holy. That means the opposite of holy. Instead of being set apart and glorified, He was made common, treated just like the other gods of the nations who said, look at, look at Yahweh. He's, he's not any greater than any of our gods. He couldn't even keep His people in the land and God's name was profane. But God is holy. He's fully devoted to His glory, isn't He? Go to Ezekiel 36 with me. Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 23, God says to Israel, I will vindicate the holiness of My great name which has been profaned among the nations which You have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove Myself holy among you in their sight. So God is going to vindicate the holiness of His name which Israel had profaned. And it's in the next verses that God sets forth His plan for how He will restore His glory among the nations. The glory of His name that Israel had profaned. And it's in no other way than through the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God had promised a new covenant, a better covenant. Not like the one at Sinai that God made with Israel. And in Ezekiel 36.25, we see why it's better. Look at verse 25. It wouldn't be an external cleansing that God would do for Israel. It would be internal. Look at verse 25. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, all the idolatry that led Israel astray. God was saying, I will cleanse you from all of that. Not an outward washing, but an inward cleansing. And beyond that, look at verse 26. He would take out the rebellious, corrupted heart that caused them to break the old covenant and give them a new heart. Look at verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He was going to literally cut out that heart of stone that constantly rejected God and His Word and give them a new heart. Finally, in verse 27, He says, since you always go astray from My ways, I will 
put, look at it, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Everything that Israel couldn't do under the Mosaic Covenant, those are the promises of the New Covenant that God made to Israel. And there's so much more. But I want us to notice something in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Look at it. It starts, it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel. We need to emphasize this. This covenant was made first and foremost to who? Ethnic Israel. God promised this covenant to ethnic Israel so, so what has happened that Peter would now say to these churches made up mostly of ethnic Gentiles, but also including Jews, that now they are the recipients of this new covenant? And in all appearances, the Jews continue in disobedience to this day. Go back with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. When God established the Mosaic Covenant, He sent a mediator, Moses, to stand between God and His people and establish the covenant. The same is true of the New Covenant, except this time it was God's own Son, Jesus Christ, who established this covenant, as Hebrew 9 tells us. In Isaiah 49, Yahweh says to His servant, Jesus Christ, I will give you as a covenant. Christ is, and and I should say it this way, God made Christ, He placed Him as the foundational cornerstone for salvation under the New Covenant, didn't He? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. It speaks of Christ saying, This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. God had given Christ as the very foundation for the New Covenant. In other words, you cannot enter the New Covenant apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And when we think about the four elements of the covenant, when we think back to how a covenant is established, we'll actually see that Christ is involved in all of those elements. First, our election by God is through Christ. We saw that in Ephesians 1.4. He, God, the Father, chose us in Him, in Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God placed His covenant love on us through Jesus, not apart from Jesus. Second, our sanctification by the Spirit is also done in Christ. Ephesians 1.13 Having also believed, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And the new heart that God promised in Ezekiel 36 also comes from Christ's work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit where our old sinful heart is circumcised. God promised that in Deuteronomy 30. That means it's cut off and removed from us. And Colossians 2 tells us that happens through our death with Christ. Our old man, our old heart is put off through our union with Christ and His death. And we are raised to newness of life in union together with Him. And as the Spirit regenerates us and gives us spiritual life, our old man dies, we're made a new creation. This isn't an external sanctification, a washing of the body like under the Old Covenant. It is the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to rid us of the old man and raise us to new life so that if anyone is in Christ, He is what? A new creation with a new heart. 
That's the sanctification that Christ enacts. Third, Peter said it is, says in chapter 1, verse 2, it's for obedience to Jesus Christ, is it not? In the New Covenant, God has established Jesus not only as mediator, but also as Lord. He is to be obeyed as our Lord and Master. But New Covenant obedience isn't some sort of external conformity to the law. It is loving obedience to Jesus Christ. And we would say along with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all so that all who live would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them. We live for the Lamb who for our sake was slain in loving obedience. And the obedience of the new covenant is a joyful yes to the law of God written on our hearts as we obey Jesus Christ. Fourth and finally, it is Christ's blood that sprinkles us. Without Christ's blood, how will you enter into the new covenant? Under the Mosaic covenant, it was the blood of bulls that was sprinkled on the people. Under the new covenant, it's the shedding and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that brings us into covenant with God. Jesus said on the night He was betrayed, this is the new covenant, what? In my blood. Jesus' blood is the blood that inaugurates the new covenant with us and God. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 18, go there with me. First uh, Peter, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We're sprinkled with Christ's precious blood shed at the cross. And in Jeremiah 31, God promises in the New Covenant He won't remember our sins and our lawless deeds. And that's only possible by Christ paying for them on the cross so that we can draw near to God. His death pardons our sins, cleanses us so that we're not left standing at the foot of Sinai with thunder and lightning and dark clouds and terror because of our sin, afraid to draw near in case we drop dead because of the holiness of God. Instead, through Christ's blood and intercession in the new covenant as mediator and priest, we can draw near to God. We have access to God into His very presence as His covenant people, knowing that there's no condemnation for our sin because Christ has paid the price. It's a better covenant, as the author to the Hebrews says, and it's inaugurated on better promises with a better sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb slain to bring us into covenant with God. I hope from that it's clear to you all that the covenant can't happen without Christ. He is indeed the chief cornerstone, but when He came to His people Israel, the majority of the Jews rejected Him. And by doing so, they rejected the new covenant for a time. God preserved a remnant. That's the apostles. They're part of ethnic Israel that received the new covenant when Christ came. But there is a major hardening in this week in your community groups. You'll see some of this in chapter 11 of Romans. There was a hardening of Israel. 
But in the future, God will cause the Jewish nation as a whole to return to Him and receive the promises of the new covenant. And we as Gentiles are actually joined in to the new covenant people. But for now, the Jews have largely rejected Christ and they reject Him through unbelief. See, once again, it's only through Christ that a person can enter into the new covenant, isn't it? First Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says that for those who believe Christ is precious and He is their entrance into that covenant. But for those who don't believe, look at it, chapter 2, uh, verse 7, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Israel didn't believe in Christ and He became a stumbling stone and they fell. And so many people of the ethnic Jews fell. They didn't enter into this covenant because of unbelief. And this is true of everyone, by the way. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're here today and you don't believe in His perfect life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, showing our justification, if you don't believe in Him, if you refuse to believe in Him, then there's one thing that's true about you. You are not God's people. You are not. In fact, Ephesians 2 says you're a child of wrath, an enemy of God. You're cut off from Him. Alienated from the life of God is how he says it. And God's justice will fall on you righteously because of your sin and rebellion. There is one answer to that problem, isn't there? Turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Peter tells us in verse 6 that anyone who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. They will be saved. It's a sure and certain hope. You must turn to Christ. It's the only way to be brought into this new covenant. Believing in Him, receive salvation, and you become God's treasured possession, His holy nation, His people. I want to close. For those of us who have believed in Christ, what's Peter's message to us? We have been brought into the new covenant. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been brought into the new covenant. Whether we've known it in the past or not, we are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that means we have a new position, a new identity. We are God's covenant people. Just as Israel was chosen out from among the nations to be God's possession, that is what God has done with us. Choosing us out from among the nations. There wasn't anything good about us to cause Him to choose us, but He did in His sovereign grace, and He has made us His people, His holy nation. That also means we have a new purpose. We have a new purpose, don't we? being defined as God's holy people, we have a new purpose. And that is what we find at the end of verse 9 in chapter 2. We exist so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's that new purpose. Is this how you see yourself today as God's covenant 
people? Is this what defines you? Is this your identity? It's not as a Democrat or a Republican or a parent or a widow. Young Christians, it isn't about what career choice you guys make. That's not what defines you if you're in Christ. What defines you is your identity as God's holy nation. You are His people in a covenant with Him. And again, that means that your life is not your own. You've been set apart to proclaim His excellencies on earth to a watching world. Again, just like Israel was supposed to reflect God's glory, obey His law, proclaim His praises amongst the nations, that's our job now. We're to proclaim God's praises amongst the nation, bring Him glory, not just by living holy lives, but also by opening our mouths and speaking of Him to others. Peter says it's to proclaim. That means speaking. That means telling others about God. Speaking the praises of Yahweh to them. Telling them about Jesus Christ. Your life matters. How you live your life is a reflection of God's holiness and does bring Him glory, but it's not enough just to live we have to speak and proclaim God's excellencies. When we don't see ourselves exclusively through this new identity, we fall into idolatry, don't we? Even if we've been saved by God, and if our knowledge stops at that, I've been forgiven by God, I'm good. I don't have to go to hell. If that's as far as your understanding of salvation goes, then Peter would say you need to grow and understand your position as a holy nation so that you don't just stop, so that you stop living for this world and you start living to proclaim God's excellencies, His praises. We need to wrap up. We need the Lord's help to be transformed in this way. Don't we to think rightly about our identity as God's holy nation and so that our lives would be totally devoted to the glory of Him who called us out of darkness into His great light. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us to transform us through the new covenant, to transform us, to bring about this transformation and to make us walk in God's ways. So we need to start thinking this way today. We need to view ourselves as God's covenant people. And we can encourage each other right now, even in our conversations, as we leave. What does it mean that we're God's covenant people? What, what, knowing that I'm God's covenant, in a covenant with God, the God of the universe, what is that going to change about the way I'm living today? How am I doing at proclaiming His excellencies We can pray for one another and ask God to help us live our lives wholeheartedly and with a single mind for His glory as His holy nation. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful today for You, for Your love for us, for Your election of us as Your holy people, that You've called us out of darkness and into light, into Your glorious light. You've made a covenant and it's all been through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank You for that. I pray that You would help us, Father, today to understand our identity in Christ as Your covenant people and that through Him and through that covenant we would bring You glory this week. pray in Christ's name, Amen.